Hey, good morning. Uh, before I forget, if there is a child that has been left in here and you want to go be with the other children and kids community, uh, you are free to go now. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the elders here, and it's a, a privilege to be able to share with you today uh, as we are starting a brand new series. We're going to enter into a series on the book of Proverbs. Uh, and we are coming out of the series, of course, on the Ten Commandments, and that's been one of my favorite series. I just loved the way that that worked itself out. And uh, we're going to be doing about five weeks on the book of Proverbs, uh, and the title is going to be very fitting for this series. It's called The Proverbial Path. The Proverbial Path. And the subtitle for today is Standing at the Tree. The reason why uh, I called it standing at the tree is because Proverbs for us, it, it sort of universalizes the garden narrative. What I mean by that is that, you know, when we think about the Garden of Eden and we, we picture Adam and Eve now standing in front of the tree with this crafty serpent telling them, take of the tree of good or of knowledge. And then they're trying to decide, do we, do we trust and fear God the way that he said, or do we do what is right in our own eyes? They had a decision to make. And Proverbs, for us, it sort of universalizes that experience. It puts us in front of the tree of knowledge of good and evil uh, every day with every decision. In every moment we are making the decision, will I fear God and trust him or will I do what is right in my own eyes and choose foolishness? You see, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he instructed them to exercise dominion over it. Multiply, be fruitful, exercise Dominion. He was telling them as image bearers of God himself, exercise dominion as, as kings and queens over this kingdom that I'm giving you. That, that language might feel a little uncomfortable for some of you because we think in terms of it, it being God's kingdom. But here's the thing. God told them exercise dominion. Be kings and queens over your, your dominion. Rule this place. And, and we know, especially looking back, that would have worked out splendidly well had they done it according to God's design, which is, yes, you have a kingdom, you have a rule, but that kingdom and rule must be submitted under my kingdom and rule. And as long as you live that way, it will, in fact, go splendidly well. But if you take your kingdom and rule and you take it outside of my kingdom and rule and do what is right in your own eyes, it will lead to ruin and to shame. And again, this is what we face every day as image bearers. If we want to live the good life in God's good universe, which is what 
Proverbs is trying to teach us how to do, we have to place our kingdom under his. But because Adam and Eve chose to do what was right in their own eyes, it led to pain and suffering. It led to weeds in the garden. It led to to broken relationships. It led to sin and more sin. And it led to this sin nature being passed down through the generations so that we are born into this kind of sin nature. The genius of Proverbs and of Hebrew uh, wisdom literature in general is that it shows us how we should have lived in Eden. It brings us back to the life of Eden, of shalom, if you will, the kingdom life under God's rule. And in the same way that we have this sin nature passed down, Proverbs, it's an accumulation of wisdom, ancient wisdom also being passed down, teaching us how to make the right decision in front of the tree. And what's interesting is that this idea of wisdom precedes the imperfection that ended up happening in Eden. What do I mean? Well, let's look first at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We see that this is the beginning. What comes before chapter 1 in the Bible of Genesis? Well, in the Bible, nothing. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So here we are in the beginning of this universe. We see uh, the heavens and earth are being created. The earth was without form. God's Spirit is hovering over water. And it would seem that this is the beginning. But if you've studied Scripture long enough, you know that's not true. There was a beginning before this beginning, sort of, because there sort of was no beginning, because God is eternal. And it's, it's, it's complicated for me to understand on this, this timeline that, 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 that God is eternal in the future. That's hard for me. But when I think about God eternal in the past, I get really bent up in here. I get really confused. Because how does it how is there no beginning? Proverbs 8 reveals to us something else that something else was created before the foundation of the world. So let's take a look there and see what could have possibly been created. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 22 starting at verse 22. It says, the Lord possessed me. Who's me? Well, this is in the book of Proverbs. This is wisdom speaking. It's it's all about wisdom. This is wisdom speaking in chapter 8, saying, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. 
Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its, with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. So here, here God is from everlasting to everlasting. And one of his attributes is wisdom. What I mean by attribute is it's something that's always true of him. He's always wise. He's, he's always just. He's always love. He's always peace. And one of these attributes is wisdom. And it's saying in Proverbs 8, God then creates this structure of wisdom out of himself. He's creating the structure of wisdom. But then it goes even further than that, because in, starting in verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress its command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. Not only did he create wisdom, but then he takes this structure of wisdom and he uses it as a blueprint to mark out the universe, the boundaries of the earth, the water, the, the, the land. He, he uses wisdom as the blueprint to create us in his image. Which has tremendous implications for us the implication, the major one, is this. If we are going to walk in wisdom, if we are to live life in the way that it was intended for us to live and experience God's good universe in the way that he designed for us to experience it, then it stands to reason that we would need to understand wisdom so that we can live according to the grain of the good universe he created. You see, there, there was a grain. If you picture a board with, with grain, he created the universe so that in Eden, if you live according to his grain and you follow him according to the grain of his good universe, you will walk in peace. There would be ultimately perfection. Things would go well for you. You would experience the goodness and the fullness and the mercy and the love of God. This is how they were created. We were created to live. And we can just for a moment imagine how wonderful that would be. And for eternity, we will be celebrating how fantastic that will be. But something happened, right? They were standing at the tree. And this crafty, wise in his own eyes serpent comes along 
and tempts them to take of the fruit. And so they do. And when that happens, a second grain is introduced into the universe. So we first have this grain. And what I'm doing here is a very poor version of grain on wood. You see what I'm doing here? And the sin nature comes in. And the nature of sin has a grain all of its own. And it is opposed to the grain of God's good universe. And all of a sudden now, Adam and Eve are experiencing this. And you and I are experiencing this. This sin nature mixed with the grain of God's good universe so that as we are traveling, traveling along, at every moment we're deciding which grain to follow. And it's suddenly very messy. You see, where perfection was, the, the grain would have developed deep ruts, and those ruts would have just kept us right along. But when it's like this, there can also be ruts developed, but we're always living a little bit in the sin nature and a little bit in the grace and mercy of God. So what does Proverbs do? What does wisdom literature do? It, it attempts to take us back to that garden decision. It attempts to pass down wisdom, hopefully to counteract just a little bit the sin nature. And it is attempting to show us how to live the good life in God's good universe and how to create the good life for others in God's good universe. And it does it on several levels. It does it, it, does it first on a very practical level. Here's what I mean by this. If you read through Proverbs, and over the next five weeks, I hope you will, would you join us in reading through the book of Proverbs? In a little bit, I'm going to give you a good working outline that maybe helps you to, to understand the big picture of what Proverbs is trying to accomplish. But as we read through Proverbs, we see there's a lot of practical wisdom for life, for work, for marriage, for family. There's practical wisdom for handling money, for living justly, practical wisdom for all kinds of things. And so the first thing we find is that there is, in fact, practical wisdom. Now, let me, let me walk you through this a little bit. <clears throat> um, if you are a person who is in medicine, and uh, perhaps you are a doctor, you know that you have to accumulate knowledge, right, in order to practice medicine well. And so you go through training, and it gives you all kind of knowledge. But just yesterday, I was sitting at a baseball game, and I was 
eavesdropping on someone else's conversation. And it wasn't rude because what else I'm, am I going to do? It's a baseball game. And the guy, I don't know what he does. He sure sounds like he's a doctor, but he had made the comment. He's like, you know, you go through school, med school, and you learn all the answers. And on every test you take, it's, you know, the answer is either A, B, C, or D. He said, you're gaining all kinds of knowledge. He said, then you graduate med school, and then you, you start to practice. And he said, the very first patient you encounter you realize that all that stuff was only so helpful because there is no A, B, C, or D answer. He said, there are so many variables. There are so many things. And he said, you just learn by going through it from experience. And so he, he's talking about this idea that you learn the knowledge, but then you have to learn how to apply the knowledge. Applied knowledge is wisdom. And Proverbs is talking first about very practical wisdom for living. In other words, if you are a, uh, a, a contractor or a, a, a person who builds a home and you learn how to, to build a home, well, after time and experience, you learn that you have to build it maybe differently with different kinds of foundation and you begin to, to develop an expertise that makes you very good at building a home. And when you build that home well, you are building it according to the grain of God's universe. The reason why it holds up well, the reason why it's quality, the reason why it's beautiful is because something in you, something in you is drawn to doing something very well. Because you are made in the image of God. Whether you're a believer or not, you were created in the image of God. You possess a piece of that. And when you are doing your craft well, you are exhibiting, you are displaying, you are showing off the image of God in yourself. So if you build well, you're building it well according to the grain of the universe. After all, God is a God who creates. God is a God who establishes, who organizes, who builds. So you are displaying that kind of character. Now, if you don't build it well, you're going to build it against the grain, and it won't go well for you. So what do we do in order to learn how to exercise wisdom in practical ways? Well, um, you know, we, we might go to school, we might have an apprenticeship to learn how to do things well. We talk to people. We have, we have experiences where we begin to gain wisdom for life. We read books. We seek advice, trial and error. And we do all of this to make us better at the practical thing, to learn how to be prudent And so I would say that without even knowing it, an unbeliever can be living with practical wisdom according to the grain of God's universe as they are growing in very practical wisdom. But wisdom is very layered. 
Because not only is there a practical component to wisdom, there is also a moral and relational component to wisdom as found in the book of Proverbs. You see, without knowing it, though, an unbeliever can also live with levels of morality that go with God's grain. They, they we can, can be generous. This is a characteristic of God. This is along the grain of God's good universe. Could be compassionate. Could be kind, selfless, just. And this is a component of wisdom. Because if you take the example of the home builder, the home builder could be very wise in going along the grain of God's universe in the way that they build the home. But in their wisdom, they could also be very crafty. They could very purposefully leave things out in order to cut costs. Things that are very important for the foundation of the house. And if that happens, they have broken a, a moral code, a relational code. They are not doing what is in the best interest of those that they are building the house for. Or they could overcharge for their service as a way to do what's right for them, so they think, and not what is fair for the person that is buying the home. So there is a practical wisdom, but there is also a moral and relational layer that comes along with wisdom, which is what Proverbs and the other books of wisdom are trying to teach us. But beyond that, there is a theological component to wisdom. What do I mean by that? Well, the first two, practical and moral, we can find those kinds of things in all kinds of ancient traditions of wisdom. In fact, uh, a, a deep study of the Hebrew tradition of wisdom finds that much of it is borrowed from other wisdom cultures, the Egyptians, Mesopotamians. But what the Hebrews do is they add this new component the component is found in Proverbs 1.7, and we'll be there in a minute. I'll show it to you. But for now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, you can do things practically. You can live morally. But what God wanted since the beginning of time is what we see in the story in Eden. In the cool of the day, they could hear God's footsteps. Intimacy. Oneness with God. Knowledge of God. Relationship with God. And this, of course, is why Jesus came. To bridge that gap so that we could experience oneness with God. So wisdom, as we will find in Proverbs, is practical, it's moral, it is 
theological. What I want to do next is um, I just want to walk through the books of wisdom with you, give a, a very cursory overview. And then I want to take us through very briefly the book of Proverbs and how it seems to be structured. That way, as you're reading along over the next five weeks, you have a structure in mind. And then I want to walk through what exactly is biblical wisdom. And that's where I want to end. And that's the point in which you will leave. And you will either go to Jason's Deli or you will go home and eat your pot roast. <laughs> or there's a third option. I think we're going to Subway. <laughs> All right. Hebrew wisdom tradition. It began with King Solomon. You remember Solomon, you remember his story, right? He's the one that God looked at and said, hey, whatever you want, what is it you want? Just tell me, what do you want? What would you have said? It's like a free pass. That's like, that's like genie in the bottle moment. I've always said, if I got the genie in the bottle moment, that you know, the wish is that I have unlimited wishes. <laughs> Why? Because somebody here is thinking. But Solomon doesn't choose that because perhaps my way is actually pretty selfish. Instead, Solomon chooses wisdom and God gives it to him. Solomon becomes the wisest man to have ever lived. And he accumulates the ancient wisdom of all kinds of people. And this is where wisdom tradition begins. And so there's conversation then about, about which books of the Bible uh, should be wisdom books. And, and some people would argue that, well, the ones that have something to do with Solomon, that's natural. Other people would argue, and they wouldn't be wrong, that, well, kind of every book in the Bible is a wisdom book because every single one is pointing us to the fear of the Lord and teaching us how to live the good life in God's good universe with him. For the purposes of my overview, I will just simply include three books as the wisdom books. And when I say, you know, three books as the wisdom books, there are also the, the historical writings. There's the Torah. There are the epistles and the gospels. And then we have the wisdom books. And these three books will be Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs being the one in the middle. It's the one we're talking about right now. And just as uh, just as a preliminary thought, Proverbs is a book that deals with generalities. If, if you think of Proverbs, you're probably thinking of little statements, lots of little statements, and you wouldn't be wrong. And they're all very general statements. But it's important to note that they are, they are probabilities. They're not promises and they're not formulas. They are, generally speaking, they are probabilities that if you live this way, you will experience life better and you will create a better life for others. Job and Ecclesiastes, 
These are the two books that deal with the things that are not general. So where Proverbs deals with the general rule of life, Ecclesiastes deals with, well, what if you do all that and it's still all pretty meaningless? It's the exception. Job deals with, what if you do all that stuff and you still find ruin and shame, but you did everything right? This is wisdom literature altogether. Of course, we're looking at Proverbs, so let's start to go through the structure of Proverbs. First of all, we have Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. If you want to understand the book of Proverbs and be quickly introduced to it, go no further than the introduction of Proverbs. This is the introduction to the book. And I want to read through chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. It says this, It's the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity. So already we're seeing the practical, we're seeing some moral and relational components. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So this is a passing down giving it to the youth. We're passing down wisdom for living, and it's come down from ancient sources. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then it says in verse 7, and this is extremely important, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There is our theological component. I'm going to move on, but we're going to come back to chapter 1, verse 7. So what else is happening in the book? First, we have the introduction, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The next piece is about eight and a half chapters long. This is chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 9. What these are, these are 10 speeches from a father to a son. Also included in these speeches are four poems from Lady Wisdom. Some of us dudes might be a little offended that wisdom is called lady. You know, why feminine? But those of us dudes who are married, we get it. <laughs> there is no argument. So 10 speeches from father to son, which again illustrates the idea that wisdom is something that's passed down. It's something we accumulate over time. The next section will be the section that many of you are going to be most familiar with. This is Proverbs chapter 10 through 29. Several chapters. What is that, 19 chapters? Just saying after saying, some from Solomon, some from others. 
Sayings about all kinds of things. Things like family and work and friendship and, and money, which includes poverty and debt and wealth and marriage and generosity and alcohol and character and forgiveness and integrity and all kinds of things. Anything you can think of, wisdom can be found in the book of Proverbs. And again, these sayings are probabilities and not promises. Here's what I mean by that. I want to give you a couple of examples so that you understand what I'm saying. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Oh, I thought I had it in here. I do not. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Do we have it up here? Oh, good. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Lazy hands make for poverty, diligent hands make for wealth. We can read that, and we can say, yeah, we've heard that sort of thing. And you could even say, yeah, generally, I get the principle. This is true-ish. Those who work really hard have a better shot of having wealth. Those who are lazy have less of a shot of accumulating wealth. But there are exceptions, right? There are people who inherit trust funds that are still very lazy. And there are some extremely hardworking people that we know that have incredible work ethic, but they just aren't wealthy, maybe because of the type of work they do. So is this true? As a general principle, the, the, the more you work, the harder you work, the better shot you have. But that's the way that we have to read it. It's, it's a probability. Let's read another one. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. seems to indicate that if you're, you're following God, you're, you're loving him, you're living the way he would have you live, that your life would be longer. Is this true? Well, maybe like it kind of stands to reason that if you're living according to the grain of the universe and you're, you're taking care of your body and you're living with peace and love and joy, it, it stands to reason and it also stands to reason that if you're living according to the sin nature and abusing substances or you're violent, that your life could be cut short. But this is not always true. It's general wisdom. One more, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. It is good general wisdom to raise your kids to model for them, to raise them, to love Jesus and to follow him. It is not a guarantee. Because we're all human. We all have choice. And we all know people who have raised their kids very well, not perfectly. None of us are perfect. If you don't believe me, you could certainly ask my kids. They'll tell you. I'm not perfect as a parent. Far from it. We all know people who have raised children very well, but they turn. And we've known people who have been far from God, and yet the kid finds Jesus. Probabilities. 
So then we move on from this large section of sayings and we move into very specific sayings by, uh, by the, sayings of, the sayings of Agur in Proverbs chapter 30. Okay, this is a guy who's sort of set up as the model reader of the book of Proverbs, a guy who's deeply seeking wisdom. He's finding humility. And then we have Proverbs 31 to cap the book off, which is the sayings of King Lemuel. And he is receiving his wisdom from his mother. So he's now passing on wisdom about leadership from his mother. And he's passing on uh, wisdom about how to be a wise and noble woman. I find it interesting that Proverbs begins with father passing down to son, ends with mother passing down to son. The whole idea that all of this is ancient wisdom being passed down to live the good life as opposed to to the sin nature also being passed down. So this is, in a nutshell, the book of Proverbs. And now I want to walk through what is wisdom. And as I walk through this, much of it will be review. And I hope that's helpful to you. First of all, the word for wisdom in the Old Testament is chokhmah. That, yeah, that made some of you look up. <laughs> like, what is he doing? Chokhmah, right? Why chokhmah? Why well, why, why is the Hebrew language so guttural and throaty? I don't know. Maybe they had air quality problems then, too. <laughs> it's very possible. Uh, how do you, I want you to try and say chokmah with me because I feel foolish, so it helps me say, say chokmah. <laughs> That's pretty good. If you struggled with it, um, the way you want to start that word off is, if you ever hocked a loogie, I'm sorry, I know this is disgusting. Chokmah. <laughs> yeah, very good. And now if you would, if you have a tissue or a, a towel, um, kindly take it and wipe off the head of the person in front of you. And you can turn to the person behind you and give them a dirty look because that's gross. Chokmah. What is this chokmah? Well, first of all, we know that it was created by God. Remember Proverbs chapter 8, it was created by God. It was the blueprint that he used. So we know where it comes from. It comes from God because it's also an attribute of God. It is his very character to be wise. We also know, as we've been talking about, that this idea of wisdom, this biblical idea of wisdom is really how do you live well? How do you understand God's good universe? And how do you live well in light of it? How do you live as well as you can? How do you live as though you should have lived in Eden? What does shalom look like? We talked a lot about this idea of shalom coming, like in the Ten Commandments and coming into the, the book of Proverbs is very similar. We're, we're talking about how does it look when, when heaven comes to earth and when we live according to the grain of God's good universe. What is wisdom? Again, it is accumulated ancient thought passed down through the generations. 
This is so clear as the book of Proverbs is showing us this information being passed down from parent to child. What is wisdom? It is practical. We've talked about this. It is the practical way of living that is according to the grain of God's good universe. There are ways of doing things that are just simply better. Not only is it practical, we talked about how it's moral and it's relational. So that as you are performing wisdom, as you are growing in wisdom, you are living in such a way that is a blessing to others. It is right. It could probably be said that every decision you make, no matter how small it is, in some way will impact the world around you and people around you, which makes every decision, or at least most decisions, moral and relational decisions. But then we come to this. Wisdom is also theological. And I want to park here for a little bit. Fear of the Lord. We already looked at it. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here the word is knowledge. The, 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 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, knowledge and wisdom become pretty synonymous in wisdom culture. We oftentimes, because we separate these two words, we think about wisdom in terms of applied knowledge, but they're pretty synonymous in the book of Proverbs. Later on, we see in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We also see in the book of Psalms, Psalms 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom for all those who practice it and have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. We even see it in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book that is one of the exceptions we talked about, where it says, you keep living this way, but it still seems so meaningless. And finally, at the end of his book, Solomon writes this, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So what does it mean then to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? It... I think, as I've studied, that the fear of the Lord is a combination of two things. It is the combination of complete terror and complete fear on the one hand. Standing, I mean, the, the Israelites before the mountain, Moses is about to go up to receive the Ten Commandments, and there's, there's shaking going on and fire and clouds, and they are trembling, it says. Isaiah chapter 6, here he is coming into the temple, and there's smoke, and there, the, the thresholds are trembling, and he is terrified. Woe to me. There is a sense of just utter terror that is part of fear 
terror because God is so good. He is so glorious. He is so holy. He is so perfect. He is so majestic. He is so sovereign that in his presence, we automatically get weak knees. And we actually see this. I don't think it's going to be up here, but we see this in Psalm chapter 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? On the one hand, there's, there's fear. In fact, we see this fear in Revelation chapter 6. We're not going to show it. We're not going to spend too much time here, but jot it down if you're a note taker. Revelation 6 and, and 7. We see people who do not know God. And as, as God is beginning to reveal himself and pour out wrath, we see the people that do not know God, they are hiding from him. It says they are hiding in caves and they're crying out to the cave walls to fall in all around them to protect them from the wrath of God. Utter terror. But that's, that's only one part. That is not the proper biblical way to really ultimately fear God. Yes, that is part of it. But the other part of it is to know him and to know his love. You see, Psalm chapter 130, yes, it starts with, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But then it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So why is forgiveness necessarily necessary to truly fear? It's because terror is not quite right because God is love. And in forgiveness, in, 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 in seeing God face to face and seeing our sin in light of him, we have the humility to realize how small we are in comparison. But in receiving his love and forgiveness, this terror and this knowledge of his love join together to create reverence and awe and worship and bowing down our hearts, and this is fear. To know him intimately, to know how powerful, how just he is, but to receive him in an intimate way that causes us to revere and to fear and to worship and to bow down. And this is why we see in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs have a very different experience during the same time. Because they're not hiding in the caves, crying for the rocks to fall down to hide them. It says that they're hiding under the altar of the Lamb. They're hiding under the altar of the Lamb. They are hiding in Christ. Chapter 7 of Revelation says that their, white, that their robes are white because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Just last week, one of my sons got a bloody nose and he borrowed a white towel from a friend. And when he used that towel to wipe his nose, it turned red, not white. <laughs> but not in this case. Their robes are turned white 
by the blood of the Lamb. They are not crying out to the rocks to fall down on them. They're crying out to God. It's the marriage of terror and love, forgiveness. What is chokmah? It's the opposite of foolishness. And I want to end there. And over the next four weeks, we will continue to look at how is foolishness different than wisdom? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need you. <clears throat> how desperately we need you, just as we sang. We need you every moment. God, oftentimes we are tempted when we are on the mountain to, to worship you, and then we're looking at the mountain that is in front of us, challenging us. We're oftentimes tempted to be afraid of the mountain, and yet we are told to worship you no matter what, to fear you. So God, I ask that over the, the coming weeks that you would do just that, that you would transform us, that you would help us to bow our hearts before you and receive your wisdom, receive your goodness, receive your instruction for life. It's in Jesus' name.